My name's Daniel Horan, and I'm Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology, and I have the privilege of serving as the director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality here at St. Mary's College. And I am so delighted to welcome all of you in person and those joining us via the live stream to this evening's lecture. It's now my honor to introduce our esteemed guest and lecturer this evening. Professor Ilya Delio is a Franciscan sister of Washington, D.C., and an American theologian specializing in the area of science and religion, with interests in evolution, physics, and neuroscience, and the import of these subjects for theology. She currently holds the Josephine C. Connolly Endowed Chair in Theology at Villanova University, and she is the author of more than 20 books, including Care for Creation, co-authored with Keith Warner and Pamela Woods, which won two Catholic Press Association Awards in 2009. Her book, The Emergent Christ, won a third-place Catholic Press Book Award in 2011 for the areas of science and religion. Her recent books include, and I believe some of them are for sale in our atrium, if you're here in person, and for those joining us virtually, wherever you buy great books. Her recent books include The Unbearable Wholeness of Being, God, Evolution, and the Power of Love, which received the 2014 Silver Nautilus Book Award and a Catholic Press Association Award as well for Faith and Science. And her very latest book, which is for sale here at St. Mary's, is titled The Not Yet God, Carl Jung, Teilhard de Chardin, and The Relational Whole, which was published by Orbis Books earlier this year. Professor Delio is the recipient of numerous other awards, including two honorary doctorates, one from St. Francis University in 2015 and one from Sacred Heart University in 2020. But as Dr. Conboy mentioned, the note of distinction we are most proud of here at the Center for the Study of Spirituality is that she was the 2017 Madaliva Lecturer here at St. Mary's College. And her lecture is now available in published form as a small book by Paulus Press. It's titled A Hunger for Wholeness, Soul, Space, and Transcendence. And yes, this is one more commercial plug. It is available for sale out in our atrium. On a personal note, I want to say what a joy it is to welcome Professor Delio back to St. Mary's. We were talking yesterday about how many years we've known each other, and I won't say how many exactly, but let's just say that Professor Delio knew me when I had hair. <laughs> I was honored to have Professor Delio as one of my teachers and mentors during my early graduate studies and to benefit from her guidance when she served as my MA thesis director, a task for which her reward will be great in heaven. <laughs> In all these many years since, I've been privileged to have Ilya as a mentor and a friend and someone who consistently models what it means to be a Franciscan theologian. She is not only a brilliant scholar, but she is also someone deeply passionate about the concrete and real impact and effects of theology, philosophy, and science. For Professor Delio, these are not abstractions, they're real. So please join me in extending a warm St. Mary's College welcome to Professor Ilya Delio, who will speak on the topic, Merton's Christophany, Teilhard's Challenge, and the Second Axial Monk. Thank you very much for that warm welcome, Father Dan, Dr. Conroy. And it's great to be back here. Um, uh, I remember being here as the Medalaval Lecturer on this beautiful campus. So I'm really happy to share with you this evening some insights on Thomas Merton and Teilhard Desjardins. How could I do a talk without Teilhard? Um, I am not a Merton scholar. I, I want to tell you that from up front, so I don't want to make any bones about it, but I am a Merton admirer, someone who's been inspired by Merton in my own personal journey. 
And so sometimes it, it, it's good to look from a broader perspective, which I will do this evening, at the influence of Thomas Merton, both on the place of, of conversion in the age we find ourselves in and how Thomas Merton and Teilhard work together, in a sense, to give us some insights on the new type of person emerging in what's known today as the second axial age. So let's just, you know, begin with this early Merton. And, you know, when I first read The Seven Story Mountain, I thought, that's it. I want to do the same thing. I was in uh, my fourth year of doctoral work in pharmacology at New Jersey Medical School, and I read Thomas Merton. I said, I'm I'm going to the monastery like Merton for holiness. And so, you know, I think Merton's um, idea was that, uh, you know, as he said, when I'm liberated by silence, when I am no longer involved in the measurement of life, but living in it, I can discover a form of prayer. Uh, as he said, that there is effectively no distraction. He says, my whole life becomes a prayer. Well, that will change for him. Um, but that kind of beauty of going into the silence of the cloister, away from the noise of the world, was very attractive to, Mer- to Merton. That kind of immersion into the world of silence. And I think, you know, that Merton, one of my favorite books, it's a classic, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it, is The New Seeds of Contemplation. And that was very influential and inspiring for me. And I I use this passage a lot with my own students. You know, what does it mean to live a holy life? What does it mean to aspire to holiness? And Merton's words are, you know, they're um, perennial. For me to be a saint means to be myself. Um, and the problem of sanctity is in the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. Uh, and that, that idea of discovering the true self, I think, was, in a sense, what Thomas Merton was about as he, you know, made this sojourn into um, monastic life. I think what I see in Merton is something very similar to what Carl Jung described as this process of individuation. And I think, you know, monastic life, if you're familiar at all with that kind of rigor of, of the monastic schedule, um, there's this disciplining uh, of the mind and the body in a sense that a harnessing of those spiritual energies towards that, you know, that locus of divine love, divine life. Jung said religion is a natural process of individuation, of becoming truly who I am in myself. Uh, and Jung, you know, said re- humanity's relation to divinity lay in relation to the unconscious as the ground of consciousness and meaning. Um, and I have found Jung very insightful in this way. I think up till now, you know, in a sense, theologically, we have not associated God with that realm of unconscious or divinity and how we understand divinity. I think sometimes we still imagine the divine one or God as one who is completely other than us, to whom we participate. And Young is is not saying that. He's saying that that one, that fullness of life, is actually at the heart of our own life, but never quenched by our own life. Um, We participate in that one without exhausting that one. And therefore, what what Young kind of helped me realize in understanding um, Thomas Merton is that this notion of individuation, which I think monastic life 
in in its best form is is really about this. It's it's really coming home to oneself, that true self that Merton writes about. Um, consciousness being brought into the unconscious darkness in a self-transformative process. Those of you who have lived religious life or have spent time in a monastery know that there's not too many distractions. You know, you can't get in the car and sh- go to the mall and lose yourself shopping. You have to really face yourself. Um, and that kind of, you know, the hardest challenge sometimes is within. It's dealing with our own darkness, our own violence, our own, are the things that separate us within. And yet Jung said that's actually where wholeness begins. And that's where I see um, Merton himself, you know, came to that kind of realization that, you know, as he says, um, if I put it here, this true inner self must be drawn up like a jewel from the bottom of the sea rescued from confusion, from indistinction, from immersion in the common, the trivial, the nondescript. We must be saved above all from that abyss of confusion and absurdity, which is our own worldly self. So the, the what Merton, what I can see is that the confusion and the unworldliness is not out there. It's in here. And I think sometimes we have built a culture and a society that draws our attention away from ourselves. When in fact, you know, what Merton really came to realize that the person, the relational being that we are must be rescued from that kind of isolated being or the individual. So this kind of inner self, he says, must be delivered from the wasteful, hedonistic, and destructive ego that seeks only to cover itself. And that's very Jungian, right? Jung had very much the same idea. The ego can easily lead us into kind of a a sense of a false self, you know, the things I think I need to be. And therefore, that coming home to oneself, I think um, it seems to mark Thomas Merton's, certainly his early journey in the monastery, not an easy one, very difficult, actually. Uh, and so I appreciate the fourth and walnut epiphany. I remember when I spent four years in a monastery and the, my biggest thrill was the first time I got to go out and go to the doctor. <laughs> I thought, wow, look at this world. It's fantastic. And so, you know, I, I can picture um, Merton. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't um, move my... Um, slides here. I, I can picture him here on the, the corner of Fourth and Walnut, uh, you know, like in the, in the kind of the awesomeness uh, of, you know, he has already kind of begun that journey within, in that kind of individuating process. And now he's standing um, on this corner, you know, in a sense, in this busy, you know, busy thoroughfare of cars and all. And he realizes that he loves all the people around him that they were mine and I was theirs. This feeling of oneness in this kind of epiphanic moment that we could not be alien to one another or even though we were total strangers. And that, I have to admit, when I went to the doctor, I did not experience that, okay? I was just like, this is so cool being out here. (laughs) But, um, you know, I call this Merton's Big Bang, um, there's something in that fourth and walnut experience that was more than just kind of a poetic or kind of just, a, I'm so happy to be here and with everyone. There's some, there's a deep 
realization that he begins to become conscious of, uh, almost like the, the start of a whole new uh, trajectory of life. And um, I know this passage from the Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander is well known, but it's worth reading again because it's, it's so important, I think, to what Merton is about in, in a sense, what he symbolizes for uh, the person today in the 21st century. At the center of our being, he says, is a point of nothingness, untouched by sin and by illusion, a point of pure truth a point or spark which belongs entirely to God, which is never at our disposal, from which God disposes of our lives, inaccessible to the fantasies of our own mind or the brutalities of our own will. This little point of nothingness and of the absolute poverty is the pure glory of God in us. It is, so to speak, his name written in us as our poverty, as our indigence, as our dependence, as our sonship. It is like a pure diamond blazing with the invisible light of heaven. It is in everybody. And if we could see it, we would see billions of points of light coming together in the face and blaze of a sun that would make all the darkness and cruelty of life vanish completely. I have no program for the seeing. It is given, but the gate of heaven is everywhere. Wow. It is in everyone. I call this the mutation of Merton. Something takes place in him. We have to at least admit that. A mutation is a change within the structure of something. The, the something, the person, the entity itself, remains within the system. It's in the system, but now slightly different from the system. And something like that, it seems to me, took place in Thomas Merton. He remained within the system of monasticism. And at the same time, something changed from that the uh, pattern of that system. So as Robert Ellsberg says, Merton came to see that the entire purpose of monastic life is to realize our underlying oneness, our unity, what he called a hidden wholeness. Um, Ellsberg states that he became more ecumenical and compassionate in tone. Even as Thomas Merton was reading his old writing, he said, I cannot go back to the earlier fervor or to the asceticism that accompanied it. The new fervor, and this is important to me, will be rooted not in asceticism, but in humanism. Not to become something other than what we are, but to become truly what we are. A kind of rebirth. I am finally coming out of the chrysalis, he writes. Now I face the pain and struggle of fighting my way into something new and much bigger. I must see and embrace God in the whole world. That is so that's such a, you know, kind of a step in a new direction, certainly from even the monastic life that I knew. You know, monasticism, as we well know, was really kind of colored by the Neoplatonic idea. You know, the primacy of the spirit over matter, the uh, pointing toward heaven and away from earth. Um, and I think, you know, what, what Merton comes to 
is something that Raymond Panikar spoke about. Uh, and that's the term Christophany. It's a wonderful term. I'm sure it's new to many people, but it really means the appearance, the phanerus, you know, the, the appearance of the Christ. According to Panikar, this phaneros has its root in Christian scriptures as the clear manifestation of a truth, the light that illumines from within. Um, so as Panikar states, Christophany stands for the disclosure of Christ to human consciousness and the critical reflection on it. The disclosure of Christ, that is, in a sense, a coming to awareness um, of the presence of God um, within me, this God enfleshed. Um, each person, Panikar says, bears the mystery of Christ within and therefore, he says, it doesn't matter what religion you are or where you are or no religion. Every single person has a Christophanic, you might say, center. And he says the first task of everyone, therefore, is to complete this icon of reality, an icon. In other words, it's this center of divine light. Um, Levinas, Emmanuel Levinas spoke of the trace of divine transcendence on the human face. The something that is ineffable of this person, right? You can't really say, you can't just reduce that person to a set of neurons or cells or, you know, just mechanize the person. It has an ineffable quality. That's the Christic dimension, the Christophany. Um, and therefore, Panikar goes on to say, Christ is not only the name of an historical person, but a reality in our own lives. And this becomes very cl close to what Jung was saying. And Jung had his very novel ideas on Christ, you know, where he said, Christ is not so much savior of the world as symbol of what we're about. Um, now, Panikar goes on to say that, look what we find in Jesus, you know, this, this meeting of humanity and divinity, finite and infinite. And, you know, in the early church, of course, you know, the way they argued over these things, you know, truly divine, truly human. How are we going to fit these two things together? You know, and we always would say, like, so the poor guys at Chalcedon, you know, constantly arguing like, oh, no, you know, is he purely divine, but just kind of appears human? Is he fully human? But And they're like, no, you know, two natures, one person, fully God, fully man. So we're not really sure because what they tried to avoid was that these two natures actually yielded a third, a tertium quid, right? A new type of nature that was neither God nor man, but both God and man, right? That is the Christ, right? And that's the thing. We can't reduce that Christ to one side or the other. And that's what Panikar, in a sense, understands here. This, this idea that this divine, this divinity at the heart of my humanity is a kind of subject to subject or I, I, this interabiding. Um, and we begin to know this in our own, and I see this in Merton, in the, in the, that deep experience, you know, that finding of the true self. So as Panikar says, you know, I discover myself as the thou of an I. God is the I and I am God's thou. This kind of advaitic, you know, experience um, where it's not one, 
not two, but one, but not one, but two. And so, you know, uh, Western thinking always wants to reduce everything to either one or two. You know, we have to know exactly, is it one or two? Eastern thinking is like, nope, it's one and two. It's both. Uh, and so you have to, in a sense, preserve the mystery, so to speak. It's the the kind of interpenetration of identity. And in a sense, that is what the human person is. We're not easily reducible to either one or two. Uh, and so I think the mystics, this is this is kind of a mystical approach to kind of the deepest notion of personhood. And, you know, Meister Eckhart um, understood this in his own way, as did Catherine of Genoa, many of the mystics, you know, Catherine of Genoa, my me is God. And we're all like, yay, for Catherine, her me is God, you know? And we, we say this today and we're like, you know, you're a heretic, you know, you're out. <laughs> same thing with Meister Eckhart. The eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love, one, not two. And that kind of mystery, entering into that unitive mystery of divinity at the heart of our humanity, I think is very relevant to Thomas Burton's own trajectory. Um, and here, I want to say that how does one get to that mystery? Like, you don't pray exactly into it, although prayer is very helpful. But there's there's a there's a kind of entering into, and I do think this kind of spiritual adventure of coming to, to coming home to oneself is at the same time it's a letting go, it's a willingness to be part of the unknown. Um, and I think it's sort of entering into these deeper levels of the psyche. I think Thomas Merton was an adventurer of the spirit in this way. Uh, he was willing to take that challenge and begin to explore those deeper levels uh, of himself through prayer and contemplation. But, you know, as we enter into these deepest levels of the psyche, where there's kind of, you know, one experiences this sense of, Sometimes allness, sometimes nothingness, you know, in, in the terms of John of the Cross and that kind of dark night of the soul, you know, you take that plunge and then you, in a sense, go in trust and faith as to where that adventure will take you. But one comes eventually to a level of, you might say, a kind of letting go, just a, a complete surrender. And this kind of, I think, for Merton, for sure, as Eckhart and others, um, leads, leads into kind of a, what we call a non-dual consciousness. You begin to come to a deeper level of awareness that is not separating things out into compartments, but begins to see things from a different level of a kind of a unified awareness. And that I call Christ consciousness. Um, and that, I think, is what we mean by my me is God. So Merton himself wrote, it is here in this poverty in this nothingness of which my total dependence, in a sense, um, is on that I at the, that thou at the heart of I. He says that one regains the eternal being that once he was, now is, and evermore shall be. So, you know, I think this kind of Christ consciousness um, is, is typical of Merton, it seems to me. Uh, he reframes, I think, this, this, incarnation process 
it becomes a process of divinization. You know, the Athanasian, like God became human, that the human can become God. And we're like, oh, yeah, well, that means become like God. You know, we can never be God, right? That's always our thing. We can never be God because God is not us, right? Uh, uh, the mystics would not exactly hold that. Like, my me is God is, well, there's God, you know, that's the whole thing. And I think Merton has something like that, although he, you know, not quite, but it's there. I do think this process of individuation awakens the mystic to the holiness of everything. Peter Todd, a process theologian, says the human evolves from an incomplete whole to a new level of completion. And therefore, a new vision, a new way of knowing, a new way of acting in this world. Um, One begins to see the the way things as they are, not as we are. Uh, And that's, I think, what we mean by this Christic. This person who becomes more God than self, more self than God, realizing this presence of Christ uh, to manifest Christ is in every person. Every person is entangled with divine love. So why do I say this? Because I think monasticism emerged, this is well known, uh, within first axial period consciousness. Uh, And that, that term axial period or axial consciousness, it's a heuristic. Right. So it's just kind of a way to kind of make sense of some big changes throughout world history. Uh, Preaxial consciousness was what we call even to today, the indigenous spiritualities, uh, tribal, mythic, communal, um, wonderful earth centered spiritualities. First axial consciousness emerged with the rise of cities and urbanization, uh, things like this. The person as person, as we know person, emerged in the first axial period, as did all the world's religions, Um, certainly the monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Islam, Christianity are all first axial religions. And so what marks this period is the human person as autonomous, like I'm not tied to the earth, I can think for myself, I can make my own decisions, transcendence, I can go beyond myself, there's a divine nature that's beyond me freedom, and the sense of person as person. We are have been in a new axial age since the early 20th century that Thomas Berry and Ewart Cousins called the second axial age. It is distinct in that we are moving from the characteristics of the first axial age to the ones of relatedness, imminence, ecology, and kind of a global consciousness. Um, it's actually second axial age is actually closer to pre-axial than axial. Now, um, I think, you know, what marks the first axial period is the emergence of the monk. So monasticism is a first axial movement. Uh, the monk in Christianity, the prophet in Judaism, uh, the sannyasi in Hinduism, all these solitary figures in pursuit of, you know, holiness. And that leads me to maybe two figures who are on the cusp between the first axial and the second axial age. Actually, probably both of them are in the second axial period, if I were to really be honest here. Um, and that is Pierre Teilhard de Jardin, the French Jesuit scientist, and Thomas Merton. Now you think, why would you bring these two people together? Um, you know, well, why not? You know, <laughs> they look like they're looking in different directions, right? You know, Teilhard is looking to the left or Thomas is looking to the right. And, you know, were they opposites? But it's precisely that they looked from two different directions, but in the same direction. 
they're both looking toward the future. And so I do think bringing them together actually can help us see uh, Thomas Merton, uh, maybe from a different vantage point. Um, For those of you who may not, let me just see, uh, if you don't know Teilhard, um, see me afterwards, okay? So... (laughs) Uh, I just want to focus here on three aspects that might tie these two figures together. One, the presence of God, two, the holiness of matter, and three, the power of the future. Now, let me just begin by saying here on, on this note that, you know, on, on face value, like if you write it down, they look like they have nothing in common. Um, Teilhard was a scientist, a geologist, a naturalist, a world traveler, lived most of his life in China and some in Africa. And he didn't like monasticism, quite honestly. He thought it was too world denying and he didn't have much, many good things to say about it. Merton, on the other hand, is talking, preaching to the choir here. You know, a monk, a poet, a writer, a solitary figure and critical of Teilhard. So why would I do this? Right. Why not? Um, fact is, Thomas Merton read very little of Teilhard. Uh, he read basically the divine milieu. He tells us later on in life, he read the phenomenon of man. And he was, for some reason, um, really influenced by Henri de Lubac's book on the religion of Teilhard de Jardin. So that's his sources for Teilhard. And what he goes on to say in two essays, he wrote Teilhard's Gamble and the Universe as Epiphany. I'm actually taking these essays backwards. This one actually was the later essay and Teilhard's uh, The Universe as Epiphany is the earlier one. But he says this. First, he says, in reviewing de Lubac's book on Teilhard, he said, Teilhard does not seem to notice the wounds of mendacity and hatred brought about by the practice of technological warfare, totalitarianism and genocide. That's been a common criticism of Teilhard de Jardin that has repeated itself in our own time. Um, and that, that's what happens when you read three works, you know, actually two, uh, and without reading Teilhard in context. So, you know, it's true that Teilhard did write on the nuclear, um, warfare. And you would think prima facie, oh my gosh, you know, he's supporting this. He's actually not, um, if you read fully of what he has to say. What he's looking at is what the power of humans to create this stuff. So he's interested in the structures or the dynamics of human creativity to move us onward. Um, so, te- so I understand uh, Merton's, you know, was appalled by his, what seemed to be his enthusiasm for the bomb um, or his kind of naive optimism with regard to evil. Uh, he also agreed with Delubac that Teilhard seemed kind of limited in his understanding of Christian thought it was never more than elementary. He said, um, yeah. Yet, um, he was attracted to Teilhard's incarnational mysticism. He spoke of him as a contemplative, a mystic, and a genius. So the same person he kind of chastised, he says, no, actually, this guy really has a lot, you know, going for him in some ways. He did write a review in which he praised Teilhard as echoing Augustine and Anselm and being part of a great contemplative tradition. So, wow. So what is it? You know, do you like him or not? You know? Um, this is what he said in the universe as epiphany he said, Teilhard was like Pascal, another Frenchman, right? The kind of religious genius who fell outside the ordinary categories 
and who would have been hampered in his creative originality if he had had to fit his thought into strictly technical limitations. Teilhard is a genius, a unique, indeed a providential combination of the scientist and mystic. So I want to just kind of put it out there. I think Thomas Merton was actually inspired by Teilhard more than he might have been, you know, repulsed by him, as it might seem. In his essay on the universe as epiphany, Merton went on to defend Teilhard's orthodoxy and applauded Teilhard's rejection of the false notion of a disincarnate or disembodied Christianity. They both lamented the fact that Christianity seemed to be out of touch with the world. And he wrote um, in this essay, the real importance of Teilhard is his affirmation of the holiness of matter. And this is the reason that some Christians are shocked by him. The holiness of matter. Um, I think, you know, as as uh, Merton goes on to say, Teilhard was a great and profound thinker, uh, but he was not content with superficial rationalizing, which has sometimes attempted to reconcile science and religion and has ended up only in an absurd compromise. Really interesting. Like Thomas Merton begins to see in Teilhard that science and religion can be valuable together and not to be too superficial and just treating these two things as separate entities. So where does that kind of lead us here? And and what does this have to do with Merton? I think Merton wakes up, not just to himself. Waking up to ourselves is waking up to the fact that we are matter. We are bodied. We're embodied persons, right? Um, You know, traditional monasticism had a way, even the habit. I remember when I went to the monastery, those of you in religious life, we wore the habit to hide the body so that the soul could be, in a sense, focused and liberated to dwell on God. But actually, we're realizing today that matter and mind are two aspects of the same reality. You cannot separate the mind from matter. And so we might call this panpsychism or holism. But I think that kind of mind-matter whole, like what we are is an embodied whole of mind and matter um, begins to awaken in Thomas Merton the sense of undivided wholeness, that who I am and what I am, you know, involves the concrete experience of those who I'm with in this world. And that's what science is telling us. We live in a world of undivided wholeness. Um, Teilhard himself wrote, matter is the matrix of consciousness. Consciousness born of matter is always advancing in the direction of spirit. Honestly, in our theology, we're not here. We still talk about mind, the mind's journey to God as something that is something distinct from the body, related to, but other than spirit. I'm not sure how we conceive of spirit, but Teilhard would think of spirit as the energy portion of matter. And I think I see some of these elements, you know, um, in, uh, oops, excuse me, in Thomas Merton as well. So I call this kind of Merton waking up to matter. You know, it's not that he just came to a sense of who he was, 
that coming home to who he was was coming home to what the world is. That's that is in a sense we are in a sense that that world in its formation. So by waking up to matter, I think Merton did in a sense begin to realize the significance of Teilhard's insights. Um, in his essay on the Epiphany, Merton he even describes Niels Bohr as a hero for developing a way to understand what's happening in matter. He didn't understand quantum reality. He tells us that understandable. But he says he understands from Bohr that the basic constitution of matter could not be fitted into abstract categories, right? Matter is a sense that's not, it's not an abstraction. It's a concrete reality of which mind is a part. So what's interesting is that by 1958, again, Merton comes to the realization that all rocks, all matter, all life is charged with dharmakaya, this kind of Buddhist term that refers to the inconceivable reality of which a Buddha is the manifestation. Everything is emptiness. Everything is compassion. Um, Robert Ellsberg says these experiences put him in the presence of a kind of ultimate reality, an experience of underlying unity or wholeness that re that represent a widening of consciousness from the church to the secular city to the cosmos itself. And this signals a new chapter. Merton waking up waking up to matter, waking up to what we are about in our concrete unfolding reality. And um, truthfully, Teilhard himself spoke in very similar terms. He, he began to realize, you know, in his direct experience of the cosmos, he found the absolute. We don't find God in some container. We don't find God in some sterilized spirituality. We find God in the hiddenness of matter itself. So in a sense, Teilhard seemed to sink down into matter um, as the essence from which all emerges and to which all returns. So this kind of experience, the stuff of matter. And here, I think Teilhard just might say, pulls Teilhard uh, Merton along just a little bit because Teilhard begins to develop a theology of a God of matter, you know, a, a God who is in evolution. And he begins to talk about experiencing the stuff of matter as presence, wholeness, plenitude. In other words, my experience of the desk, my experience of a person. Um, so that for Teilhard, matter became the place of the absolute. This is not just sort of a second, you know, second level reflection of God. This is, in a sense, the very presence, you know, this experience of divinity itself. So Teilhard says at one point in his heart of matter, he says, there gradually grew in me as a presence, much more than an abstract notion, a consciousness of a deep running ontological current, ontological, right? So it's not a being that we're participating in. It's rather that being itself is, is part and parcel of what we are. He says, and what the universe is, embracing the universe in which I moved. And this consciousness continued to grow until it filled the whole horizon of my inner being. So for Teilhard, this presence became symbolized by Omega, not a new and vital presence of God, he says, draping the world with power, but a God integral to the world's becoming. And therefore, I take, I take God here, divinity as the overflow of life that life within our own lives, that presence that cannot be, in a sense, that cannot be quenched by us, but that is pulling us 
as we, in a sense, wake up to that life, in a sense, God becomes actualized, becomes embodied um, in our own lives. And that presence for Teilhard is love. Uh, and he says, you know, driven by the forces of love, the fragments of the world seek each other so that the world may come into being. Love, the vital energy that pulls life together into more life, which is very consonant with John 4.1.3. God is love. And it's not that God just loves like God is, you know, this being other than us who, who loves us. God is love. Love is, in a sense, the very nature of God. Um, and therefore, I think we can bring these things together. Even Merton says that love is our true destiny. We do not find the meaning of life by ourselves alone. We find it with another. Where there is love, there is unitive being. Where there is love, there is unitive life towards more life, right? Love doesn't stay satisfied with, great, we're together, cool, you know, like let's let's leave it here. It's always a coming together for something more than what we are individually or alone. Um, and what Teilhard is saying is there's something of that unitive energy already at work in the cosmos all the way up. And he begins to see that love energy as the very presence of God, Omega. And I think Teilhard would have no problem with that, or Merton would have no problem with that at all. And that's why I think both of them, as they awaken to their own reality, to this, this new vital presence of divinity at the heart of life, a God who is in love with matter um, and not other than matter. They begin to lament a disincarnate Christianity, uh, a Christianity that is, in a sense, removed from or slightly aloof from the world. Um, and of course, they're writing at a period of time prior to Vatican II. Of course, this was one of the driving forces of Vatican II. The ship has moved too far out to sea. Right. And it has lost sight of the land. Uh, and, you know, as Merton writes in Love and Learning, any attempt to see the world and history as dynamic developments in which man's freedom plays a constructive, indeed essential part is seen as a dangerously radical temptation. Such is the false notion of a disincarnate or disembodied Christianity, which in fact is not Christian at all. Unfortunately, this kind of mentality is resurfacing today. This kind of let's not get, you know, the church should not be involved in worldly affairs. It should be involved in the affairs of holiness and spirituality. And it's why we have a little bit of a divided church. You know, it's we still have the disincarnate Christianity and we have those who really want to, you know, like incarnation is a really wonderful thing. You know, God so loved the world that God's, you know, God became flesh. Um, Merton goes on to say the modern world is insulated against Christianity by the inveterate suspicion that Christianity seeks to make us inhuman. It empties human life of meaning in order to draw the Christian aside and make him concentrate on a purely spiritual world, which has nothing to do with the present one. Christianity. Um, now, Merton, I have to admit, he was pretty harsh. He was he was like right, you know, bullseye sometimes. Christianity is nothing but an invasion. Wow. Nothing but an evasion. I mean, that's not like even being subtle, you know, that's like, well, maybe we should think about this a little bit. This is like, no, seriously, you know, this church is really kind of lot, it's out, out to lunch. 
And, you know, I do think, honestly, I think Pope Francis might have read Merton. I mean, we have to agree, you know, God bless Pope Francis making every effort to bring this church into a world that is in formation with all its complexities and its challenges. And, you know, it's having um, its own challenges. Teilhard de Chardin said the same things. He said, there are times when one almost despairs of being able to disentangle Catholic dogmas from the geocentrism of which they were born. Our dogmas, our theology was born in a very different age. And part of our challenge is that we've never really updated the cosmology of our theology. And we're pretty sure we could just kind of tweak theology without, with, you know, leaving the Ptolemaic background there intact. Uh, Teilhard says the cosmos has become a cosmogenesis. It's not even a cosmos. It's not a static something. He says it's something that's information. And this itself must lead to the profound modification of the whole structure, not only of our thought, but of our beliefs. Again, very radical. And he goes on to say, a Christ whose features do not adapt themselves to the requirements of a world that is evolutive instruction structure will tend more and more to be eliminated out of hand. We've, I mean, here, I think what they're saying again is, what is the Christ, the beauty of that power of God's love incarnate and what that could mean for us when we make Christ in some kind of dogma, you know, that's fitted into a framework that becomes now something exceptional to us that in a sense, we, in a sense, have allegiance to, we've lost sight of the living God and that, that, that livingness of God um, in us. So Teilhard says, Christ must be born again. He must be reincarnated in a world that has become too different from that in which he lived. I speak about this as a God world entanglement that, you know, entanglement's a word from quantum physics today that, you know, even if you want to conceive of God as completely other than you cannot get rid of the fact that we conceive of God, consciousness plays a fundamental role in our experience of divinity. And so there's a, there's a deep, um, inseparability between God and matter or God and world. Uh, so that Teilhard um, himself said, without matter, we would remain ignorant both of ourselves and of God. That's true of, of any tradition, quite honestly. Without consciousness, we cannot say really anything. So he writes this beautiful prayer. I bless you, matter, in your totality and your true nature. You I acclaim as the inexhaustible potentiality for existence and transformation. I claim you as the divine milieu charged with creative power. Raise me up then matter until at long last it becomes possible for me in perfect chastity to embrace the universe. If we had a theology rooted in this kind of incarnational reality, I wonder, would we have a planetary crisis today? Uh, you know, I'll just focus on the second point here. Teilhard was steeped in this, um, in this incarnational unfolding. He says, I see in the world a mysterious product of completion and fulfillment for the absolute being himself. And it's hard for us to get our heads around. Could God become something more? What would that mean? Is not God perfect and immutable, 
you know, and, and, and therefore all knowing and unchangeable. And, you know, it's really, you don't have to be too far afield here, but if we say God is love, then that perfection of love will always be something in the other, right? Love is always other centered. Love always needs to be embodied and actualized. And therefore God will always be in a sense, becoming in love ever more in love, the ever newness in love, as Meister Eckhart wrote. So we have this idea of deep incarnation. And I think this term pertains both to Thomas Merton and to Teilhard de Jardin. They both came to an awareness of deep incarnation, not just the Christ who saves us, savior of the world, but a kind of self-emptying God, a God who is immersed, you know, um, in th- all things, drawing all things through love into this fullness of being. So God found not in opposition to matter or independent of matter. I don't go to the monastery to escape matter, but to enter into it. We take hold of God in the finite. Teilhard himself, you know, um, spoke about a new religion of the earth. He said, in the future, the only religion possible is the one which will teach us in the first place to recognize, love, and serve with passion the universe of which we form a part. And of course, for him, um, you know, he felt Christianity was the religion of evolution, quite honestly. He felt that Christianity was completely compatible with what science was telling us. But I think Merton and Teilhard, both incarnational mystics, both sensing a deep presence of divine love at the heart of their lives, it leads them then into, I think, these three areas. One, interreligious dialogue. Second, the role of contemplation and social justice. And three, fraternity. So just a brief word on each of these. Um, I think, you know, Merton's sojourn um, among the Buddhists, his, his, um, you know, travels to the East, his awakening to the deep relationality of Buddhism and his attraction to that um, religion uh, really kind of, it, it did place him again, the mutational Merton, you know, put him in a mutational position of this kind of interreligious uh, building uh, together, you know, and uh, several um, articles over the years, um, certainly um, worked by William Thompson back in the 70s, you know, and um, Thomas Merton himself on the transcultural Christ, you know, realizing that Christianity, he said, is undergoing a process of detachment from its inherited Western forms and is being summoned to a form of transculturalization. Um, really interesting. I think something that took place back in the seventies and kind of dwindled. And, you know, and I think we might be, you know, if we, if we can go in that direction again, it would be wonderful. Um, but I think, you know, what Merton realized is belief in the risen Christ rather than being an obstacle, uh, in the counter of world religions becomes itself the means of encounter. That's Christophany at its best, right? Christ, not an obstacle to the unity of religions, but the very source of this unity. Not that we name others as being Christic. That's not the point. It's to live it. It's to live in the, in the, in the, uh, in the appearance of divine love within every person. So as Thomas Merton wrote, we must contain all divided worlds in ourselves and transcend them in Christ. Um, you know, as he saw the role of the mystic. And he says, anyone who proclaims him or herself Christian believes in the risen Christ and must be on the way towards a transcultural consciousness and transcultural encounters. 
I think that we have sort of dwindled in this area, quite honestly. Um, world religion, you know, interreligious dialogue was prominent in the 70s and 80s, but we become preoccupied with other things in the, you know, in our own century. And um, it's unfortunate because what Teilhard saw is that religion, which is basically on the level of human consciousness and action, he says, um, really should energize and activate the earth. He thought that the world's religion should come together to um, harness the creative potential in building the earth and the development of human community. I think Thomas Merton would agree to this as well. Merton himself said, we need a world soul. And that I can agree. You know, I think I think Merton's, again, his, in a sense, going outside the monastery into that kind of greater interreligious, you know, dialogue was, in a sense, a movement towards building a world soul. The more we become conscious of the immensity and the organicity of the world around us, Teilhard says, the more the necessity for a soul that makes itself felt, a soul capable of maintaining and directing the vast process of planetization in which we are involved. Quite honestly, religions have not been here for the last 20 years, 30 years, but technology has. So while religions are not building, in a sense, a world soul for, you might say, the the development and the, the transpersonalizing of the universe to something more organic and unitive, what we do have is an AI world soul emerging, but without any, any wider context or aim. So uh, Teilhard, again, just, just so you know, he was very involved in interreligious dialogue. In fact, one of the first in the mid, in mid 20th century, he says the various creeds still commonly accepted, you know, provide us with an individual line of escape. And, and for this reason, they fail to allow any room for a global and controlled transformation of the whole of life and thought in their entirety. So in a sense, you know, what Teilhard, like Merton says, that we're sort of, we're, we're thwarting the energies of religion um, to really help motivate and build the earth. Uh, in a 1950 talk, Teilhard says, no longer is it simply religion of individual heaven, but we're looking for a new religion of humankind in the earth, sort of like oxygen, without which we can't breathe. So how do we get to that new religion? How do we come into a kind of a, a deepening of what we already have, but in a wider perspective? And for both of these um, mystics, it's through contemplation, right? It's through this idea that contemplation is not a separate department of the soul, as Merton wrote, but a solid foundation for every other human striving. Um, contemplation in that sense of, in the Mertonian sense of arriving at one's ground, that inmost center, in the Eckhartian sense, seeing oneself as one is seen through the eyes of God. God not at present as an object, but as the subject of my very being, the I, the thou of my I and the I of my thou. Uh, Richard Kropp says, it was this self-altering power of contemplative prayer, prayer which transformed Merton's monastic consciousness from its inward-turning world-despising stance to its later openness and responsiveness to the challenge of world transformation. Prayer, real prayer, changes us. I mean, that's like putting it in a nutshell, right? It's that when we really are in deep dialogue, when we're in that relationship with God as an ongoing living relationship, we will be changed. 
Uh, and I think that is very true of Merton, you know, and he realized that it's not just the kind of platonic love anymore. It's a love, a love that's driven in a sense for, uh, you know, to overcome the evils of the world to, to, in a sense, a, a love that will fight in the f- face of injustice for a world that is, you know, open to life itself. Um, not merely to compromise with these things, not merely to take the mediocre center, you know, to say, oh, I love God, you know, and never really to get involved with God. Um, Teilhard, same thing. The human person, he thought, is vitally related to the formation of this universe. Our acts make a difference. We move things forward or we stifle them. We either evolve or devolve. Contemplation is that process by which human energy expands. Consciousness is maximized. And what what Teilhard himself recognized is that contemplation may be our best antidote in a world that that kind of pulls us in multiple directions in technology today. Contemplation pulls the mind back into, in a sense, an integrative center. Uh, and therefore, it actually harnesses our energies um, so that we can uh, prevent forces of dissipation. And therefore, I think that the mystic, like a Merton and Teilhard, is one who's acting out of this deeper center of love, this, this harnessed energy through this intense contemplation, and therefore begins to see the world from a new center. They begin to see how this world is is being formed. And therefore, they begin to see, in a sense, love running through this world and run toward that love. And where it's necessary to, to oppose the injustices, when necessary to make the necessary changes, to act in a new way, to do new things. Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to, I only have two hands and one voice, so sometimes just kind of, <laughs> um, I think Merton and Teilhard were what Martin Laird calls contemplative energetics. Isn't that a great term? I'm a contemplative energetic. So um, contemplation and action in this way, um, you know, form the energy that are, that the, the structural energy of shaping things. Uh, the contemplative, as Laird writes, is one in whom the sap of the world, the energy of matter flows. The one who embodies a zest for life. A zest for life. Isn't that a great term? You know, I find most people today enervated. Like, they're like, oh, God, do we have to do this again? You know, it's like I'm exhausted. Um, but I think a Merton and Teilhard, with all that they had to challenge, you know, face, that they saw themselves as, in a sense, proactively co-creating something new here. So why do I say this? Because I think all that we're saying here in terms of Merton and Teilhard move us into a new type of person in the second axial period. Uh, I think monasticism itself, if I know if there's anyone out there in Zoom land, you know, uh, in a monastery, um, I know that a lot of monastics are grappling today with what is our life about? You know, what do we exist for? I think there's a tremendous role here because, you know, not that you should be this, but, um, you know, Teilhard realized we're on a new level of thought, but not in terms of thought, just in terms of like AI thought, thought of knowing, a knowing that's a way of loving. So, you know, knowledge and love are so deeply interconnected. To know deeply is to love deeply. 
And I think this is our challenge today and on the level of neugenesis, the, the realm of mind and evolution. Tara thought we can move to a new level of co-reflection, a new type of interthinking, interloving humanity, a new type of organism whose destiny could realize new possibilities for life on this planet. Merton himself was future, became future-oriented in his later years. As he wrote in one short introduction to a Spanish edition, he says, our responsibility is to the future and not to the past. The past does not depend on us. The future does. The church in this new world is more than a decorative symbol of the past. It is the mother of the future. The church as the mother of the future. Its members must open their eyes to the future. They must recognize the signs that point to the future. Uh, that's Thomas Merton in 1958, right before the Second Vatican Council emerges. Teilhard himself wrote, the age of nations has passed. Now, unless we wish to perish, we must shake off our old prejudices and build the earth. The more scientifically I regard the world, the less can I see any possible biological future for it except in the active consciousness of its unity. We will either progress towards a more unified future, in Tara's view, or we will not progress at all. And so, you know, I think Teilhard... And I just want to put this out there because, again, of the, I would say, slanderous, you know, um, labels that have been given to him recently. He did see that the social integration of people, you know, around the globe into type of superhumanity uh, meant the further evolution of us on a higher level, which is, in a sense, what Merton was, in a sense, anticipating in some ways himself. Teilhard thought that the a basic mutation had already taken place in his own time, in a post-Darwinian, post-Marxian, and post-Freudian consciousness. He saw these movements of Freud and Marx as, in a sense, having within them the potential to do these things. He saw that, you know, these movements could potentially bring about a collectivity and move us to a higher level of consciousness together. And therefore, he was attracted to them. He was attracted to them because of what he saw as sort of a power at work in them. But he also said at no other age in history has humanity been so well equipped and made so many efforts to create some kind of order out of its multitudes. Yet with communism and socialism, all this has ended up in the most appalling linkage in chains, in the crystal instead of the cell, the termishery instead of the fraternity. Instead of the upsurge of consciousness, what we have is the mechanization that inevitably seems to emerge from totalization. And he thought that this is, um, in a sense, you know, actually, sorry about that. You know, he said that this leads us into becoming termites. It's wrong and under the sentence of death. Uh, you know, so he wasn't, he wasn't for Nazism or communism. He saw that we have the potential to harness ourselves into new collectives, but it has to be for the good of the whole. Um, let me see where we are. He says society will inevitably become a machine if its successive growths do not culminate in someone that is a deeply personal center of love. We either become more in love together 
or we will, in a sense, in even in Teilhard's views, we will dissipate and, in a sense, become machinic. So, you know, as Merton says, to say I'm made in the image of God is to say love is the reason for my existence. Love is my true identity. Selflessness, my true love. Love, my true name, my true character. Teilhard would say the same thing. You know, again, that love waking up in, Te- in Merton, realizing that they were mine and I theirs. We cannot be alien, you know, to one another, no longer strangers. Very similar to Bohm, David Bohm's idea of this is one whole. That's what science is telling us today. We live in one cosmic whole. Um, so, you know, Merton, the Christophany person, becomes Merton, the evolutionary, Merton, the terrestrian, Merton, the ultrahuman. He is no longer, I'm surprised he even stayed at Gethsemane. Uh, I know he, you know, had some challenges there, but he becomes a new type of monk. And I do think he proleptically might say ushers in a new type of monasticism. Monasticism is not just something that's dated in old. We need centers of integrated wholeness. And if I were to rename what is the monastery today, I might call it the center of integrated wholeness <laughs> or integral wholeness. Um, not so much a solitary, but someone who is open to and aware and, and deepening those relationships in the world. Not so much withdrawn from the world, but engaging the world. Solitude doesn't necessarily mean a rejection of the world. It means actually deepening what we are for the engagement of the world. And therefore, not so much centered on above, but ahead. So, you know, uh, Beatrice Brutel said, we are the new creation. We are the ones, you know, who are being created and in the process of creating. Whatever this world becomes, it's not outside us. It is us. We are the worlding of the world. Uh, and therefore, it does depend on the energies we bring to this very process. It does depend how we harness the energies of love within us. Cosmic energy, the energy of the universe, human energy, but then a deepening of that energy. I think actually Jesus of Nazareth was pointing in the same direction. You know, a new mind, a new heart for a new world. Or as Gaston St-Pierre said, when the level of our awareness changes, we start attracting a new reality. That's what we have to keep asking ourselves. What is my awareness at this point in time? You know, uh, and therefore, I want to maybe just end by saying Thomas Merton and Teilhard de Chardin were, in my view, uh, authentically Christian. Not Christian like, wow, look at us, we're special. Christian in the deepest sense that they incarnated the love of God and they saw this love of God deeply present in the whole of life, in every person. And, And therefore, they made every effort to actualize that love, to bring that love into um, an existence where uh, we are no longer aliens to one another, but in a sense, working together for a new wholeness, a new earth. But let's face it, Christian life was never meant to be an easy way out, right? Um, a, a disciple of Christ is not just, you know, a day in the monastery in beautiful silence with the Gregorian chant. Um, it is an edgy life. You will move from the comfortable center to, you know, the, the very edges of the cliff itself. But, you know, I have to, if you don't mind, I'm going to end with the words of 
one who was not Christian, but one who saw the future. And that's the words of Steve Jobs, who wrote, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do so. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Delio. Um, I think we have time for maybe one or two questions or comments from our live audience with all respect to our streamers. Um, and then Professor Delio will be available to sign books and chat with folks in the atrium near our bookstore um, exhibit. So my colleague, uh, Dr. Fetter, and I will have microphones, and we just ask uh, that you raise your hand if you have a, a question or comment for Professor Delio. Um, do you think there'll be more actual periods to come, or will it just end at the second axial period? Oh, I definitely think there'll be other axial periods. I think actually we're on the verge, the cusp of the third axial age because we're beginning to explore uh, extraterrestrial life, quite honestly. And so people are beginning to speculate on consciousness in other, asp in other aspects of the, of the universe. And Teilhard himself actually wrote on this, on intergalactic life. Yeah. So to think that terrestrial life is itself a closed loop, like this is it, uh, well, no. <laughs> so stay tuned. Yeah. Hi. Um, how would a conversation of interreligious dialogue look like um, within uh, Catholics today? I think that's there's like a very common answer to that. But I'm curious to know, because I think Catholics, like you said, very widely. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, I've never um, I've never thought that interreligious dialogue should be comparing dogmas or creeds. I think we have to come together and say, what do we share in common? The earth, the good of the earth. Uh, social justice, uh, justice for all, uh, the, the welfare of the future. And then we realize that these various traditional paths can each bring us, in a sense, into these um, common elements that we hold together. Uh, but I don't think comparing, like, my God's bigger than your God is ever going to be helpful. You know, so I think people have to, uh, they take up those spiritual traditions as those traditions help shape them into a greater fullness of personhood. But I, I do think that future and the planet of the earth, the good of the earth are what we hold in common. I think we have time for maybe one or one more. Yep, yeah, Dr. Fetter. I made it up. No. <laughs> it's actually uh, Steve Jobs' um, graduation address to the Stanford class of 1980 yeah, or 82. Yeah. Hi, I was curious if you had thoughts, like you mentioned how um, like, well-intentioned groups like Marx, it Marx theoretically had very good ideas and it got warped somehow. Somewhere along the way, it became this mechanical thing. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on how to avoid that in future efforts to create this global community. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So I think, you know, what we're seeing is we have the potential to come together and work collectively towards something. But the question is then what values shape the collectivity? Right. And that's where I do think having the Christian values of, say, 
care for one another, compassion, uh, justice for all, so that it doesn't become a monopoly of power, you know, say in one person. Um, it has to be shared power. Uh, so we need a, a system of values um, that help us choose uh, something together. Um, I, but what Taylor was saying is we can do this. Like it is within us to do this. So, you know, it's not, this is not like a naive idea, like, oh no, we can never have a better earth or planetary life because it's just not possible. It is possible. Um, but we have to, in a sense, awaken. And this is where I might say, I mean, a lot of my own work is how do we awaken? And I want to kind of move away from religion as a static category to religious energy, the energies that really bind us, that give us the zest for life. I mean, I do think if the 20th century discovered, you know, how to science was for the 20th century, religion should be for the 21st century. We need a kind of a religious revolution of the values that can deepen what we are, bring us together and then help us participate um, in advancing life to more just and, and fecund life for all. Please join me in thanking Dr. Delio again. Just a few announcements, because uh, as a Catholic institution, we always have announcements and then a second collection. I'm just kidding about the second collection. Um, a, a few notes of thanks. Uh, thanks to President Conboy, to Dr. Pearson, um, to all of our colleagues at the ITMS, uh, to the Sisters of the Holy Cross, and to the broader community here at St. Mary's College for hosting this event and for welcoming Sister Ilia Delio to be with us. Um, please join us for those who are here in person in the atrium outside the auditorium where our bookstore has several of Professor Delio's books for sale and where she has graciously agreed to sign books and chat with you all. So if you had a question and couldn't ask it in our short time for Q&A, uh, please join us in the atrium. The second thing I want to highlight is that the Center for the Study of Spirituality invites you to mark your calendar for next year's lecture, which is scheduled for Tuesday, November 12th, 2024. We're working on the final details and look forward to announcing our lecture title and lecturer soon. And finally, thank you again for joining us here at St. Mary's College. We wish everybody a wonderful evening. Thank you.